This is Guns and Butter. What Mao was doing in the Cultural Revolution was, I think, that he was carrying the revolution to that further radical point, which was necessary even to protect the gains of what had already been accomplished. And that's the point I want to stress. So it was, on the one hand, what he was doing was continuing the earlier revolution and trying to extend the advances that had been won. But I think that uh, a critical aspect of the Cultural Revolution was that he was trying to protect what had already been won against what he saw, and, and accurately, as we now know, were the forces that were going to try and reverse that. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Robert Weil and Ann Tompkins. Today's show, the international impact of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Robert Weil and Ann Tompkins participated as panelists in a three-day symposium at the University of California at Berkeley, Rediscovering China's Cultural Revolution in November 2009. We begin with independent researcher Ann Tompkins, who lived and worked in Beijing for five years during the first half of the Cultural Revolution. She discusses her experiences in China, beginning as an observer and then as a participant in what she describes as the greatest experiment ever made in democracy. She is the co-author of Chinese Poster Art from the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. Anne Tompkins. When I went to China, I had no Chinese. I had not been a, a person who admired things Chinese, you know, the historic and so on, the artwork and so on. I wasn't a student of Chinese history, so I didn't read or write or speak Chinese. So why am I up here? <laughs> ah. Well, I call it serendipity. I had been a Marxist in the United States. Actually, I started when I was 15 in high school wearing a button, break relations with fascist Spain. I want to tell you that uh, I went to China by way of the World Peace Congress in 1965. I hadn't intended to go to China, but I was so excited at the Peace Congress to be able to actually talk to Chinese people directly, one-on-one, -on -one that uh, it was a very wonderful thing that happened that I was there. So before that, I just want to say to this crowd that I did count myself as a Marxist before I went, so that wasn't something new or strange. Uh, however, I was also a graduate student in social work at UC Berkeley and got my master's here in social work and was disappointed in the field because... Um, as one person put it to me, one of my colleagues said, the, the problem grows faster here than we can fix it, meaning hunger and other poverty problems and so on. So I went, I went uh, to the Peace Congress, interested in world affairs and interested in how to improve the world, but I didn't expect to get to China and had no thoughts about anything happening in China when I was invited by the delegation. I arrived in China in November 1965 and was greeted by the Peace Committee, who were my hosts. 
I had said that I didn't want to just go for two weeks when they asked me if I'd like to go. I'm a little pushy sometimes. I said that I take things in slowly and I felt that I would do better if I could work and be there a longer time. I guess it took a little bit of chutzpah. My passport from the United States said that I couldn't go to communist-controlled countries. So we just didn't use my passport. (laughs) I want to say that the idea that China was closed and that nobody could go there was a myth. It was the United States government that wouldn't let us go as citizens at that time. They lost in the courts later, but I'm not sure that that's held up. So uh, I arrived, and I was there for over five years initially. So I want to do the first ten minutes about experiential things and the second ten minutes about things that I learned that I think are useful for the United States today. I want to say that I lived there from November 65 through March of 1970, which is just after the Ninth Congress was held of the Chinese Communist Party which was, uh, I thought, meant that the Cultural Revolution was over already. Not quite. I saw, I saw half of a Cultural Revolution, half of the 10 years. And I lived there again between 1980 and 83 in both Beijing City and Dalian City. And uh, most of the time I was a teacher of English was my job. So I've been back on six or seven trips. I sometimes lose count or I'm not quite sure of dates. And uh, I think that in many ways my role in this panel is as an ordinary citizen from this country who didn't know anything about China and what I learned there. seems to me that's the useful part. I was assigned to teach English under the Foreign Experts Bureau, it was called, a department in China. And I was placed in the Yoi Bingguan, which is a friendship hotel, which had originally been built for the accommodation of Soviet advice sometime before I got there, uh, maybe about 10 years before or eight years before. And uh, so I was in this very, very plush hotel. We had curtains on the windows, we had rugs on the floors, we had bedspreads on our beds at a time when all the Chinese people were rationed in yard goods. So it doesn't sound like luxury here, but it was luxury there. Hot running water in our bathrooms, in our rooms, and so on. Uh, I was driven every day by a chauffeur with a car from where I lived in Yoi Bingguan to the Beijing Yuyan Shiyuan, which is the Beijing Language Institute. Beijing Language Institute had three departments. I was in the English department teaching selected worker and peasant young people at college level. Uh, I think it was a one or maybe a two-year program. It was also Chu Guobu, which was the going abroad to study group. These were Chinese people who were being sent abroad for work, doing a crash one-year study English program. And then there was Lai Huabu, which was come to China to study. And these were foreigners, and they were maybe 10 or 15 people at most in that program, many of them from Japan, but from other countries who were learning Chinese, came to learn Chinese, I should say, 
So that's where I was assigned to teach. I taught from January in Baudi, wherever you are. Yes, it was May when the classes stopped, my classes anyway. Uh, between that, I had the experience of the utter reverence for teachers that was accorded by most Chinese people and uh, utter discipline, regular attendance, incredible memorization of maybe 25 to 50 words, new words for vocabulary overnight, students walking up and down reciting for hours to memorize. I couldn't grasp it. Um, so I had very warm relationships with my students, both men and women students. And then I saw, I mean, the way I experienced the onset of the Cultural Revolution was that some of the students weren't prepared for their lesson. This was unheard of. And then some people were not at class. That was even more unheard of. And then there were people sitting there and falling asleep in class because they were staying up so late debating things in the groups that they were getting into. So finally in May, they called the classes off. They sent me on a trip with a whole bunch of other foreigners and interpreters that went with us to travel for three weeks around China, many, many places. I was very excited because part of what that did was it showed me in different factories that we visited and in different places, the posters that were going up around the country. Of course, I was seeing them in our school and I was seeing them happen on the streets of Beijing, which was, of course, a hot spot for that. So I saw it break out. <laughs> it makes me cry just to think about it. Um, I'm sorry. I'm surprised. Um, I've, I spoke here on this university campus in January, and in the after discussion with the audience, I made a declaration that the Cultural Revolution, in my opinion, was the greatest experiment ever made in democracy. Somebody that I love very much called that hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? Gross exaggeration, basically. Uh, I stand by that statement. And that's how I saw it, that's how I felt it, and that's how I see it today. And uh, it's so comforting to be among a few other people that see it that way. <laughs> so I saw the posters going up in our school when the classes stopped. We cleared the classrooms, we put straw on the floor, we put down mats over the straw as these young people were arriving from all over China, having never traveled out of their villages before, their hometowns, and they were coming in to see Chairman Mao, of course, but also to study all the things that were happening in Beijing where the posters were going up, and the posters were going up pro and con. I mean, anybody put up a poster, somebody else could put up one opposing it or supporting it, or debating it, other facts. So this, in, in, the, in this book, which I will recommend to all of you, Silage Choppers and Snake Spirits, it's a little bit of a difficult title for us, but this is about a couple who went to China from the United States and have lived there for over 50 years. So it's a book to look for. It's just out, very new, by Dao Yuan Zhou.
C-H-O-U. Um, in our school, somebody mentioned, uh, Han Lungping mentioned the loudspeaker systems. And I had enjoyed the news, which was for an hour every morning in our school. And the news included news about Albania and included news about Venezuela and places you never heard of. All over the world, news within an hour. Brief, brief bits, but still very world conscious. And I couldn't understand all that, but it was one of the ways I helped learn, learn some Chinese. And those same speakers became uh, part of the difficulties of the Cultural Revolution because, well, first of all, I, I won't go through the progression. I think about the uh, described some of the phases, which I would love to get a set of <laughs> those descriptions of the phases because I'm a little mixed up about some of them now. But the experience of the beginning motions in our school, there was a work team that came in, which was what they called lung lung ching ching, which is four ways of saying cold, dampening down the spirits of the masses. So we finally threw them out. And when they threw them out, they also overturned the administration in our unit. The culture revolution was from the unit up and the criticisms were to start at home wherever you were. So they they uh, took some of the officers of our school out and there were dunce caps and there were signs on some of them. And that's a bit uncomfortable on the one hand. On the other hand, it's absolutely delicious. <laughs> it depends on what you really believe or what the truth is about what's going on there. So if they're really criticized and it's really wrong, then that's a mild form of Humiliation, and I don't believe in humiliation generally, but I can really understand it. And if you go back in the history, in the, in the Chinese history, the same thing in terms of when the peasants had meetings to criticize the landlords, they had years and centuries of oppression that they were speaking to. And if every peasant had only one poke at a landlord, going back in their whole family history, just one poke, some of those people died from the number of pokes they got. But that wasn't supported as a method of treatment by the Communist Party of China, according to my understanding. But I think that it's very important not to be afraid to acknowledge such things. There are mistakes, as Han Dunping just said. You're listening to independent researcher and author Ann Tompkins. Today's show... The International Impact of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So, in, in our school, first of all, I wasn't living in the school the first year. I was living at Yoi Bingwan, which is a, a mile or two away. So I didn't see all of this early part. But um, I called Joan Hinton and some other of my foreign friends, Sid Angst, her husband, and there were others that I'd gotten to know who spoke English. And we had a study group which worked in English, but we were trying to apply everything that was going on in the Cultural Revolution to our own lives. So I called on Joan and said, let's go down and will you help translate what's happening downtown in, in Beijing and Wang Fujing Street and so on. So we took our bicycles and we went down. Well, anyway, so 
Joan and I went downtown and we saw dots of owls. And even though she wasn't an expert in Chinese, she could manage to tell what they were about. We came across one poster that had been written by overseas Chinese who were protesting the separation and the way they were treated in China. And Joan and I, and she says that I raised it, but I think it was probably between us jointly, said, why don't we write one? So we went back and talked to her husband, Sid, and to their sister-in-law, Bertha Hinton, Bertha Snack, as she's now. And uh, the four of us agreed to write a Dotsabao, a poster, big character poster. And so we did. And we apparently spent about 10 days hangling and raggling over what we were going to write and just what was it. But it was all directed at the Foreign Experts Bureau, which we really resented. And I will take the liberty to read to you from our poster. Actually, my memory is a little bit different from what's in this book, because my recall is that it began in Chinese with what monster is it that? And then the list of crimes. Here it simply says, why is it that the foreigners working here at the heart of the world revolution are being pushed down the revisionist road? Now, you may have to study a little about what revisionism is, but we can get to that. What devils, demons, and snake spirits are behind the treatment of foreigners working in China? This was all right within the mode of the Cultural Revolution. Why is it that foreigners, regardless of class or attitude toward the revolution, all get the same five don't have and two have treatment? That's our invention. Five don't haves and two. The five don't haves, one, physical labor, two, ideological remolding, three, contact with workers and peasants, four, class struggle, five, struggle for production. The two haves, one, super high standard of living, two, special treatment, banquets and all sorts of things. Oh, but that's, that's not the end. What kind of thought is behind this treatment? It is not Mao Zedong's thought. It's Khrushchev's thought. It is revisionist thought. It is the thought of the exploiting classes. What is the object? What is the result of this treatment? One, to prevent foreigners who want to be revolutionaries from grasping Chairman Mao's thought. Two, to gradually soften up revolutionary foreigners living in China and push them down the revisionist road. Three, to prevent foreign children brought up in China from becoming revolutionaries. Four, to isolate foreign revolutionaries from their Chinese brothers, to break down their mutual class love, to undermine proletarian internationalism. We think this is not a question of a few individuals, but a question of principle related to world revolution. We resolutely oppose this kind of treatment. We are determined to become real revolutionaries. We are determined to steel ourselves for an all-out struggle against U.S. imperialism. Our children must become staunch successors to the revolution. They must never be allowed to become revisionists. Therefore, we request, request, mind you, we're foreigners, all of us. One, that we be treated not like bourgeois experts, but like class brothers. Two, that we be permitted and encouraged to join physical labor. 
Three, that we be given every assistance in our ideological remolding. Four, that we be permitted and encouraged to have close contact with workers and peasants. Five, that we be permitted and encouraged to join the three great revolutionary movements. You know what they are? Production, scientific experiment, and class struggle. Eight, that special treatment be abolished. Only in this way is there a chance for us to become revolutionaries of the kind called for by Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao Zedong. Long live the great proletarian cultural revolution. Long live the great unity of the people of the world. Long live the great invincible thought of Mao Zedong. Long live the great leader of the Chinese people, the international proletariat, the oppressed people, and the oppressed nations, comrade Mao Zedong. Still stand by it. Uh, but you never know what's going to happen when you write a big character poster. So we didn't post this on the walls directly because the argument in the foreign community was so bitter. Some people maintained we're foreigners and we should not be participating in China's cultural revolution. We would be interfering in internal affairs. Well, it's quite an argument. So we were taking a stand that class is the major question and your class stand is the most important thing. So that if we really united with the working class of the Chinese people, that we should participate. So we got called. Well, first of all, we took the poster. We put one in the mail to the Central Committee of China's Communist Party. And we took the other to the Foreign Experts Bureau and handed it to the leader, who's the person that appeared and said he was in charge. And he took it, and we thought, well, that's the end of that. We'll never see that. But not so. It got posted in uh, some place within the Foreign Experts Bureau where the staff went. And in this book, it relates, which Joan remembers and I didn't, but that the workers suddenly started smiling at us and being very nice to us. And, so on. So people who had seen Chinese staff who had seen this poster in their private headquarters where they had their posters uh, were supporting us. It was very nice. A few days later, we got a call, urgent call, limousine sent to pick us up. Dress now, come to the, come down to headquarters. So we were taken into a very fancy meeting room, and none other than General one of the major four generals during much of the Chinese Revolution, Chen Yi, met us and told us that Chairman Mao had seen the poster, that he had agreed with it. And then he went on and talked about a number of other things. Uh, that was pretty impressive. <laughs> but it was even more impressive when sometime later, we, I don't know how, and apparently Joan and Sid didn't either, uh, and, and Bertha. The poster appeared on the wall in the hall of the foreign language press. And uh, so the poster appeared on the wall, and then the other posters appeared around it, written by other people. And they were actually invited to also, not only the four of us, but these others who had supported our Dodsbaugh where many of them were from the Japanese community in Beijing at the time and others. But I have to tell you the end of the story because uh, later 
Chen Yi didn't tell us, but later it came out that Mao Zedong had written a directive, as we translate it as Pisher in Chinese. It's kind of a commentary or instruction. I don't know what the best translation is. But anyway, he said, don't let there be two kinds. He agreed with the Tatsubao, and he went on, and it's, it's also in here. Buy this book. I recommend it. It's got a lot of mistakes in the layout and the text, but it's really worth reading. So the result was I was liberated from the, the Friendship Hotel to go live in the school. And from there, I was able to take part in political study, which they brought certain documents to me and helped translate. Uh, I was taken to any meetings I wanted to go to in the school. I could go and listen to everybody. I could take part. And I made some funny speeches in my very early Chinese because Chinese has tones. And I would use English and say, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> you know, tones were all over the place. Try, try whatever I, my speech was. So, so I was in the Cultural Revolution. I was not an observer of the Cultural Revolution. And I did take part in the school. And one of my perhaps regrets is when my students asked me if I wanted to go to Shanghai with them, which would have been the Shanghai storm. I had to debate that really hard. They'd all been going out on these trips on the trains and they invented, they took their long marches and they would plot where they wanted to go and why they wanted to go to different places all over China. And it's hard for people who travel as we do in this country to appreciate what a liberation that was. My students came back from Xinjiang and said, do you know that there are Chinese people who look like you? <laughs> Me, big nose, etc. I did know, but they found out. Tremendous learning. And... Uh, there were difficulties. I heard that there were suicides in our school. I didn't know the people well enough to know who they were or what the issues were. I didn't understand enough Chinese to get those stories in detail. And in the course of the Cultural Revolution, I had friends uh, who were taken, foreign friends. There was a what we called an evil wind. Uh, different theories would rise and get responses from the people that were doing the criticizing and the Red guards and all the teachers and all the workers and everybody was taking part. So um, I experienced some of the dangers. We Foreigners were under tremendous suspicion merely for being foreigners by a lot of people. And that's why some of these people were taken away. And when I say taken away, they were taken by one of the factions in the struggle that was going on in Beijing City. And some of them for two years removed from three kids. Uh, another couple removed from two kids for several years. Five years for one parent before Joe and I called everybody and apologized at the end of the Cultural Revolution for those that were held this way, mis, mis wrongly held. Those people have not negated the Cultural Revolution as a wonderful experience. Their attitude was, we said we wanted to take part, and boy, did we take part. <laughs> so, great people. I have a list of, not 12, but 13 items that I think I learned that are critical for this country. Okay, I won't, I won't explain them, but I will mention them. Which means that when you get this little book, which they still sell at the China Bookstore, 
which is now in South San Francisco, and it's owned by China now. They sell this at ten dollars. Used to be about sixty-five cents. Yes. So they know where they make their money. They're not selling any other of Mao's works currently in that bookstore from China. Okay, number one. This is going to be really rapid fire. So if you want to know more, you'll have to ask questions. Grass class struggle and all problems can be resolved. One sentence quote. Grass class struggle. We don't talk about grasping theoretical things usually, but that's the best we can translate from Chinese. Uh, I say class origin and class stand were something that I had not distinguished before I went. And it's a very important distinction because you can't control what your class origin is. You're born wherever you're born. But boy, can you control your class stand. You can take a position to side with the working class and the oppressed and exploited anywhere. Okay, uh, another form of that slogan, as far as I'm concerned, is serve the people, which Deng Pinghang spoke to at length, um, the concept. The concept one divides into two. That's one way of saying it. We're talking about dialectics, the dialectic that's in everything. And it's called in some of Mao's writings the basic law of dialectical materialism or the basic law of the universe. Now, look, I just gave you the basic law. <laughs> but all you have to do is figure out how to use it and understand it. Okay. Uh, there's another expression of that which I write down as U-S-U-S-U or S-U-S-U-S-U. Unity struggle, unity struggle, unity struggle ad infinitum. But each one is a different level. You unite on some basis and you struggle and then you do better unity and you struggle at a higher level, hopefully. Okay, so change is a constant and everything changes and there's a relation between quantity and quality. That's the basic Marxist concept I learned before I went to China, but boy, did it deepen as I read Mao's works, especially where he deals with the theory, the theory of Marxist knowledge and materialist knowledge. Three, the masses are the heroes, and we ourselves, what is it? Yeah, rudimentary in our knowledge. The whole concept of the masses are the heroes is so important and so deep and was so stressed during the Cultural Revolution and actually throughout China's party history. So the mass line. And here I really want to read one quotation, particularly for this crowd, with whom I share some much in common and some differences. Um, in all the practical work of our party, all correct leadership is necessarily from the masses to the masses. This means take the ideas of the masses, scattered and unsystematic ideas, and concentrate them through study, turn them into concentrated and systematic ideas. Then go to the masses and propagate and explain these ideas until the masses embrace them as their own. That, to me, is the critical part of what the mass line is. It isn't a matter of just talking to them and then making your line. It's a matter of talking to them 
making your political line or program and getting it back to them. And the test is whether they recognize it as their own. And they hold fast to them, translate them into action, and test the correctness of these ideas in such action. There's more to the quote. I recommend that everybody read all five volumes that Mao wrote. Oh, that's a little job. But please undertake it seriously. I think if you call yourself communists or radicals or revolutionaries, you really owe it to yourself to include that study. You've been listening to independent researcher and author Anne Tompkins. We next hear from Robert Weil, Senior Fellow at the Oakland Institute and author of Red Cat, White Cat, China and the Contradictions of Market Socialism. Today's show, The International Impact of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. There are three main points that I want to uh, try and bring out. One is to put the um, discussion we've been having today in a certain historical and global perspective, because I think that that's necessary to understand the more specific elements of especially the effect of the Cultural Revolution globally and um, here within the United States. And I want to start doing that by reading a, um, a bit of a long quote from Friedrich Engels, um, from 1895, the year of his death, uh, in which he's talking about the general history of revolutionary struggles. And this is um, Engels. As a rule, after the first great success, the victorious minority divided. One half was satisfied with what had been gained. The other wanted to go still further and put forward new demands, which, partly at least, were also in the real or apparent interests of the great mass of the people. In individual cases, these more radical demands were actually forced through, but often only for the moment. The more moderate party would regain the upper hand, and what had last been won would wholly or partly be lost again. In reality, however, the truth of the matter was largely this. The achievements of the first victory were only safeguarded by the second victory of the more radical party. This having been attained, and with it what was necessary for the moment, the radicals and their achievements vanished once more from the stage. And I think that this is in some ways um, useful in terms of looking at what happened with the Cultural Revolution. One of the main accusations against Mao and the, and the Cultural Revolution is that they went, quote-unquote, too far. Uh, but what I think Engels is saying here uh, in reference to all the great revolutions going back to England in the 17th century, is that every such struggle has produced those that are accused of going too far. Um, that each had a radical element that was um, not really sustainable um, under the conditions in which the revolution was initially launched. And I think, again, that this applies to the Cultural Revolution. Um, what Mao was doing in the Cultural Revolution, and we've heard various descriptions of that um, already, was I think that he was carrying the revolution to that further radical point, which was necessary even to protect the gains of what had already been accomplished. And that's the point I want to stress. Um, so it was, on the one hand, what he was doing was continuing the earlier revolution and trying to extend it 
extend the advances that had been won. But I think that uh, a critical aspect of the Cultural Revolution was that he was trying to protect what had already been won against what he saw, and, and accurately, as we now know, were the forces that were going to try and reverse that. So in Engel's word, the achievements of the first victory were only safeguarded by the second victory of the more radical party. And um, I'll come back to it, but um, though much was lost, many of the, if you look at China before the revolution and you look at China now, you know that much of the gains of the revolution were maintained, even despite the setbacks that have now been suffered. Um, the issue of going too far also brings up the question of the level of violence and the cost in lives, because this is another uh, kind of accusation against the Cultural Revolution. Um, most of the Chinese I know do think that the Cultural Revolution was excessively violent and that this helped to undermine um, its long-term success. But um, as um, it may have been Anne just now mentioned, this doesn't lead them to oppose the campaign as a whole. Um, and we have earlier examples of this from history. The French Revolution and its terror, or even our own Civil War and Sherman's march through Georgia, which is often described in similar kinds of terms as, as being excessively violent, etc. But I think if we look at that, at those, um, though they were considered extreme, certain aspects of them, um, they were the final blows which actually wiped out in France the Ancien Regime or in our country slavery and prevented it from being able to be restored. Um, even Thomas Jefferson, um, commenting on the uh, bloody events in France, um, said that, um, I, I won't read the whole passage, but he basically said, um, that even if uh, only Adam and Eve were left after the revolution because of its uh, violence, but they were free, that he would prefer that to the alternative. Um, so that's, you know, that's how real revolutionaries, um, I think, do look at these events. So if we're going to say that the Cultural Revolution should not have occurred because of certain kinds of things that uh, happened within it, such as the levels of violence, then I think we have to be consistent and say that things like feudalism and slavery uh, should also still be continuing because of the things that happened in the struggles against them. That we have to look at the Cultural Revolution in that same kind of uh, context. Instead, I think we need to recognize that the immense violence of those systems, of feudalism, of slavery, and I would say of capitalism, provoke a reaction that at times is carried further than necessary. Um, in fact, most of the violence during the Cultural Revolution, and this is something that I've only uh, understood more recently, was actually carried out by those in power trying to stop the more radical elements of the movement not by those that were leading it. Nevertheless, there was too much factionalism, um, and this did lead to unnecessary conflicts and people being uh, mistreated in ways which I think we need to, learn, to uh, learn a lesson from in terms of our own struggles and how to conduct them. Um, the second point then I want to uh, generally make is um, that 
the advances that the Cultural Revolution uh, accomplished and its limits, the Cultural Revolution really did establish a new benchmark for where society could go, and that even though it was not sustained in its original form, it permanently raised the level on which revolutionary struggle is grasped and society is understood. Um, first, it extended the gains already made. And just to review them, the land reform in particular, the transformation of the land holding structure in China, which continues even today. Um, individual farmers are once again back under uh, contracts for each household. They broke up the communes that were developed during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, but land holding is still collective in the countryside, and people are basically still guaranteed their land, though they're losing aspects of that. But that's an example of how the gains of the earlier struggles were maintained, despite the setbacks that came later. The collective organization of production, the enormous social securities that are really uh, unprecedented outside of the um, socialist world in, in poorer countries that Dung uh, Ping talked about, particularly education, medical care, etc. The degree of bottom-up power that was instituted, these were extended during the Cultural Revolution by an enormous shift of resources, physical and mental, economic, political, and cultural, especially from the urban areas to the countryside, but also from elites to the working classes, from men to women, from older people to younger people, and in effect from the past to the present. Um, and there were also the enormous class and cultural shifts that were critical, intellectuals and artists, uh, learning from the workers and peasants, going out to uh, live among them and experience what their was, life was like, um, taking part in production and also sharing their knowledge so that um, those from the working classes could begin to have some of those same skills in a more developed form. And this, again, has had lasting impact. Um, I read a, uh, uh, a series of writings by John E. Mo, the um, film producer, director, um, who's, of course, gained such prominence. And it's very clear when you read his writings that uh, the years that he spent during the Cultural Revolution and uh, having contact with the peasantry in particular really became uh, one of the foundations of his later films and of the kinds of topics that he uh, did at least his earlier films about. Um, so those things, too, lasted. Old customs and uh, attitudes were challenged, corruption, bossism, elitism, authority of the elderly, male chauvinism, and these challenges were institutionalized in three-in-one committees in which workers or peasants, it varied from institution to institution, but workers or peasants were part of the actual administration of all kinds of uh, bodies and institutions in the society, including universities. The ideas that uh, we've heard discussed today, to rebel is justified, serve the people, became the guiding principles of the campaign, transforming attitudes in ways that have continued down to today, um, despite political reversals. And I believe it was uh, Deng Ping and uh, 
his book, uh, talked about particularly things like children challenging their parental authority during this kind of period. Real alteration in the way that people looked about at the world and the society. You're listening to author Robert Weil. Today's show, The International Impact of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So again, um, I think that, that what Mao and others who struggled with him uh, did during this period was to prevent the move to a revisionist capitalist road that would have reversed these kinds of gains at a much earlier point if this campaign had not been carried out. So I think that it went too far, not in, in its own terms, not in terms of the revolution itself. In fact, I think if anything, it, it didn't go far enough. Um, but it did go too far in certain respects in relation to what um, the class system and the international structure at that time could really support. And so it was overwhelmed ultimately by the class forces that were still aligned against it. Uh, it was undermined by the opposition of the party and the state and military bureaucracies. By excess, but also, I think, by excessive factionalism at times, unnecessary violence, certain kinds of ultra-left tendencies, which allowed those still clinging to power to manipulate and suppress uh, those that were uh, leading the struggle. So, as we've heard, the capitalist rotors under Deng Xiaoping were able to reclaim power, not only to end the Cultural Revolution itself, but to turn the clock backward, undermining most of the collective gains that had already been made. Um, and just one uh, uh, aside on this, uh, the figure that I've heard quoted is that something like 800,000 people were arrested um, after Deng Xiaoping came back into power. Um, people and, and the rebels and those who had really fought the Cultural Revolution. This was suppression on a very, very large scale. And I personally talked with one of these people who spent 17 years in jail uh, after that period, uh, had been one of the leaders of the Red Guards in uh, uh, Zhengzhou. Um, so despite enormous uh, economic gains and restoration of China as a major global power, as uh, it's now talked about, uh, this had devastating effects on hundreds of millions of peasants, workers, and uh, exploited migrant laborers now. Um, but they and the left in China, which is reviving, uh, still look back to Mao and the Cultural Revolution. And one of the uh, expressions of this is that there are now something like 100,000 uh, significant protests in China every year uh, by workers, peasants, migrants, um, and including uh, members of the middle class at times. Um, and I think this is an expression, of, again, of the way in which the concepts of the Cultural Revolution, especially the idea that to rebel is justified, um, is still a living force within China, despite the fact that, that we've had all these setbacks. Um, so the final point I want to cover is the um, impact of this. Um, one of the lines of attack against the Cultural Revolution is that people in the West 
were essentially fooled or misled by the movement, especially those that went there during that time. Um, this gained strength, this idea, from the many people who have abjured uh, their support for the Cultural Revolution at the time and have now come around to criticizing it very uh, heavily, saying that they didn't know what they were doing back then. Um, the argument that the whole thing was a kind of Potemkin village um, in which people were showing uh, the, the good clinic and the good school and what have you, but they didn't really know what was going on. Um, interestingly enough, uh, even De David Rockefeller, head of the Chase Manhattan Bank and a leading imperialist, said at the time after visiting China, what is impressed immediately by the sense of national harmony, he talks about the support for Mao, um, it's obviously succeeded not only in producing more efficient and dedicated administration, but also in fostering high morale and community of purpose. Um, economic and social progress is also impressive. Um, and everyone seems to enjoy adequate of Spartan food, clothing, and housing. Streets and homes are spotlessly clean and medical care greatly improved. Crime, drug addiction, prostitution, and venereal disease have all been virtually eliminated. Uh, so take it, take it from David Rockefeller. Okay. Um, others talked about how intellectual and city dwellers of all sorts went out to the villages and have overcome the notion that intellectual work is more respectable than manual work. Okay. So the question is, were they simply fooled? Um, when we look back at it, um, I think we can say that they weren't. Um, in 1991, the New York Times reported on the medical uh, situation in China, uh, which at that point was still uh, had a good deal of the remnants of the system uh, from before. It had not been as totally dismantled as it is now. Um, they noted that life expectancy in Shanghai uh, was higher and infant mortality was lower than in New York City. Um, though the income level in Shanghai was about $300 a year and in New York was whatever, you know, 10, 16,000, 20,000, something like that. Um, another person at the time noted that if you just go through the statistics for China on demographics, you wouldn't think it was China or you wouldn't think it was a third world country if you didn't know who you were looking at. And yet last week in uh, the Times, there was an AP report of a syphilis, quote unquote, boom due to prostitution and poor health controls, especially among the migrants. This is a quote. The disease reemerged during the 1980s after being virtually eradicated for two decades. And cases are now growing by 30 percent per year, usually in places where the economy is booming, but where there is also greater economic inequality. Um, so I think what we can say looking back on this is that, yes, maybe Westerners who went to China at that time were showing an idealized version, but they were idealized versions of a reality of what was going on at that time. So it had enormous impact worldwide and um, in France and Mexico, uh, etc. Um, but several examples here from the United States. One is that... Um, Several radical professional groups emerged right during that time. Uh, the Union of Radical Political Economists was founded in 1968. 
The Radical History Association emerged during the same period, and there's a slew of these. Um, there were many influences, certainly, on, on why people formed those at that time, but the Cultural Revolution, I believe, was a major one. And uh, taking the attitude that uh, there should be a deprofessionalization of the professions in the sense that they should not act strict just in an elitist manner, that they should serve the people, that they should uh, understand the society. Um, and many of those groups still exist today. Um, the Black Panthers have all already been mentioned. I won't uh, go into it um, much, but um, not only did they sell the Little Red Book, but, of course, they later read the book, and, it, in fact, Mao's ideas and the, the whole Chinese Revolution became the foundation for the Black Panther Party program. Um, similarly, in the Asian American movement, uh, they began to absorb the lessons of Mao and the Cultural Revolution and the Black Panthers and the Civil Rights Movement. Um, and there was, uh, that was a major source of the uh, Asian American struggles. And um, within the women's liberation movement, um, it was not only things like uh, women hold up half the sky, but um, specific methodologies from China so that the speak bitterness um, meetings um, became one of the sources of inspiration for the consciousness raising sessions within the radical wing of the women's liberation movement, such as red stockings. So these ideas really had direct effect on how people were struggling around the world. And I think that a lot of people really reoriented their entire lives around these ideas. Um, despite the fact that um, the Cultural Revolution could not be sustained in the form in which it was originally launched, these ideas seeped into the culture. Many people adopted them, including myself, as hopefully ways in which we have conducted our own affairs, going into other parts of uh, the society and struggling to survive in this uh, horrible capitalist system, but nevertheless, as much as possible, trying to use these ideas um, to um, continue our struggles wherever we are. Um, so I think in this sense it became a new benchmark a new level on which the struggles are conducted worldwide. And when things revive, which I have no doubt that they will, given the crisis and the horrors of the system today, um, I have no doubt that, that people will go back once again even more to these ideas, uh, apply them and absorb them again, raise them to a higher level. Um, because that struggle was made, and we can now build on top of that, rather than simply starting all over again. So these, these things are not dead, um, and people are taking them, they're integrating them with new ideas from the 60s and 70s, um, but these struggles go on, and I have no doubt that they will grow stronger again. listening to Robert Weil. Today's show has been The International Impact of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Robert Weil is a senior fellow at the Oakland Institute and author of Red Cat, White Cat, 
China and the Contradictions of Market Socialism. We began the show with independent researcher Ann Tompkins, who lived and worked in Beijing during the first half of the Cultural Revolution. Ann Tompkins is the co-author of Chinese Poster Art from the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. Rediscovering China's Cultural Revolution was a three-day symposium at the University of California, Berkeley, in November 2009, sponsored by Revolution Books and Monthly Review Press. More information on this event is available at www.revolutionbooks.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaromako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's blfaulkner at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 